This week's Cloudcast is brought to you by Momentum SI. Whether you want to migrate applications to the cloud, transform to enable DevOps, gain insight from big data, or accelerate your agile development, Momentum SI's strategy, consulting, and hands-on expertise can help you get there faster and with greater success. Check them out at MomentumSI.com. And now, on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of the Cloudcast. We are, as always, coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And tonight, uh, Aaron's out. It's just me. Intimate look into DevOps with uh, Mr. Michael Ducey uh, from Chef. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We've been trying to get you on for a while, and uh, Aaron and I were sort of the the bottleneck uh, for scheduling stuff. So, um Appreciate well, I, think the, I think the flu is the bottleneck. Well, the, the flu is the bottleneck, and you were traveling all over the world. And um, so, for for anybody that doesn't uh, isn't you know into the sort of the DevOps space and doesn't know you, tell us, give us a little bit about your background and and why you're always traveling the world. Sure. So, I guess when I started out, I really got heavily into systems engineering, Linux engineering, and I think well, as most people kind of did, I think mainly in the DevOps space, right? And um, while I got into that, did a lot of operations work for Orbitz. So Orbitz Worldwide is a large e-commerce a global platform now where they sell uh, plane tickets, hotels, car, and then packages around hotel and car. So just your normal travel site, much like Expedia. Uh, but was really interesting there is I kind of got the taste of traveling the world with them. So they're a global company that had uh, companies that they had acquired in Europe and then also in Australia. So it's really kind of interesting to see while we all have different cultural backgrounds, uh, everybody faces the same problem as far as uh, uh, DevOps and and systems administration and development and everything like that. Um, and that's where I kind of got into this mindset of and what really interests me from a DevOps perspective is at Orbitz, you know, we, we did a lot of awesome things. So Graphite actually came out of Orbitz, which is kind of the de facto tool or has been the de facto tool for graphing for some time in the DevOps space. And that actually came out of Orbitz and actually the team that I was working on um, did that work. I didn't actually develop it, but I feel like I, I, I'm emotionally attached to it uh, <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah. And um, what's really interesting is how we did a lot of things right there, but how we did a lot of things wrong at Orbitz as far as um, what we're doing now with DevOps and uh, or what the industry is doing now with DevOps. So that's yeah. kind of the background of okay. what I've been doing for a while. And then kind of getting into the cloud space and then the automation space. I've been working in that with large vendors and then moving on to smaller vendors like Chef. Right. So, and you were... You were at Instratius, which some folks know because uh, we've had George and James on before. And so b- before we dive into Chef, because I want to dive into the Chef stuff and, and a bunch of the things that you're working on. So just just to give people perspective, because I, I hear this all the time from folks who have never really worked on a lot of the web scale stuff. And, and I think everybody's used an Orbitz or an Expedia or something like that, uh, where, you know, there are so many things that go on in those systems Um behind the scenes, how many things tie together, like for something like an Orbitz, how many, 
how many applications, how much interaction goes on when I book travel that includes a car and includes, you know, just a couple of things. Like give folks a sense of how much goes on behind the scenes to be able to give me, you know, search through hundreds of bookings, check for other things, figure out my preferences. Like give me a scale for what some of that stuff looks like. Sure. Uh, no, Orbitz was always, at least the time that I worked there, was the smaller of the top four travel sites. So Expedia, Travelocity, and then Orbitz was number three. And then there was a fourth one, I think it was Priceline, which was number four. And that was always kind of the pecking order. So from a scale perspective, we were the smaller of the group. But say, for instance, you go on and you search for uh, a flight. Uh, and that's actually going to go through probably about five or six different uh, application servers, uh, and then it will actually go out and make a remote call to uh, basically what's called an availability service, um, and that availability—that's a remote site that we don't actually manage, and that would basically say yes, I still have those flights available. And then once you—that's just for the search part. And then once you get into the search part, then we actually have to go out and run through those five applications again, or five different applications, and then go out to the airlines themselves and say, "Okay, I have this rate. Is this rate still valid?" So just for one little simple air search, you—you you think it's very simple when you're, you know, operating with a site or you're using something like Kayak or something like that. But it actually gets pretty complicated in all the various systems, and then also systems that are outside of the control of orbits that uh, things have to go through. Okay, and and and, and kind of my team's responsibility was uh, managing a farm of twelve hundred servers that basically all of the search. Uh, for air went through. So every time that uh, a user did a search on our site, it would have to go through this this farm of 12,000 servers, or 1,200 servers, sorry. Okay, okay. So yeah, like you said, that's just, you know, one little one little aspect of it. It's not, you know, the, the, the dozens of other things that are popping up as you're searching around, you're looking for new stuff. And uh, Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's one of those misconceptions that I hear from a lot of people when they, they try and compare, you know, kind of traditional enterprise IT and what happens on the web, and they kind of go like, Oh well, Facebook or NetApp. That's really or not uh, Facebook or Netflix. Like that's one application, and it's like no, no, no. It's it's dozens of applications that you know kind of are chained together in various interesting ways. Yeah, and it's also applications like I said that you may not even control, right? So there's a lot of old mainframe systems that we would have to go out and talk to. Yeah, and so that's like a common enterprise IT. Well, I have to run the mainframe and all of that. You know, we had to actually go out and do that translation to talk to these legacy airline systems. Interesting, interesting. So, um, you spent uh, you've done a number of things. You spent a little bit of time at at Stratius, so you got a sense of like how people were out using various public cloud services. Now you're at Chef. Um, you know, give us a, you know, it, so you've obviously done a lot of hands-on stuff. Give us a sort of day in the life of, of folks that are in that DevOps. I, I hate to say that because it's like, oh, people that do DevOps, but but of a team that employs DevOps yeah. sort of, my, you know, mindset, methodology, tooling. What What's a day in the life for those kind of guys? Like how do they... You know, walk us through what folks talk about when they when they do scrums, when they talk about sort of burn down rates, when they're doing continuous development. Like, what what all's involved with that for any sort of operation, uh, large, large or small? So, what's interesting as I look back to what we used to do in the operations world. So, uh, when I was working at Orbit, Scrum was really kind of taking hold, and we were still. For development purposes, most of development was using kind of more of the waterfall model. Yep. Some teams were starting to go into Scrum. What's interesting from a, a DevOps slash, you know, let's just call it operations people perspective. 
um, you know, agile for operations is here. And, you know, that's what DevOps is, right? So mm-hmm. it was originally coined as agile operations. And it's really interesting to see, like, um, the day in the life is more for an operations person now is more acting like a developer, right? It's going into a stand-up. Uh, it's, uh, you know, working through Git. It's working through test-driven developments and your automation and all of these things that really, you know, eight years ago wasn't wasn't even a pipe dream. And they were just now coming into the development space. And now, I mean, it, that's where the, the DevOps comes from, is that the operations people are performing more of, like, development tasks to get their day-to-day work done. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and it's not so much, you know, writing the applications, but it is, you know, like we talked to, talked to Mark uh uh, in Briaco a couple of weeks ago, and, and he was like, you, you do write a decent amount of code in terms of tooling, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to make your life easier. And then, like you said, trying to, to kind of get into that mindset that developers are using same tools, same check-ins, um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, so you're at Chef now. Um, you guys just finished ChefCon. You know, the whole space around what Chef or Puppet or some of these others are doing, I mean, it's, you know, originally it was, you know, a lot of kind of sysadmin driven tools, a lot of building, you know, building servers and so forth. It's kind of expanding out. We're seeing um, those frameworks uh, for, for networking now. We're seeing it for a lot of stuff. Like where's where's Chef going with the platform? Uh, what, what's the big things coming out of that space right now? So I guess the biggest thing, and it, and it seems it's been around for a while at least maybe a year, year and a half in kind of the whole DevOps space. But um, test-driven development is really where things are going. So so test-driven development, as we say, for infrastructure code. So now I can actually write tests to make sure that my cookbooks or recipes or even manifests in the case of Puppet uh, are behaving the way I expect them to and are giving me the result on the system. And we're now starting to even see this flow into the networking space. So uh, talking to, um, I don't know if I can actually mention their name, but uh, talking to some people in the networking world where they're actually beginning to do continuous delivery and continuous integration and test-driven development for SDN. So actually making sure that my infrastructure, not just my server infrastructure, but my network infrastructure is behaving the way I expect it to when I'm going to apply this automation to it. What's really interesting from that perspective is when you start to do those things, the speed at which you can begin to move. And you can't move fast without making sure that you're going to move safe. Um, You can move fast and move sloppy, and then you're always trying to fix stuff, right? But if you can move fast and safe, and that's what test-driven development really kind of gives you, then it just makes you that much more confident when you push to production that it's going to be in a controlled manner that reduces risk, right? And that's one thing with automation that people are always worried about is it's, you know, developers with root passwords and production and cowboys and guns firing off and, you know, the Wild West, but it's really not that way. Right, right. And And so, you know, a lot of folks are kind of familiar with the probably much more of a waterfall kind of mind, you know, kind of methodology where you've got dev, you've got test or QA, QA has got a whole bunch of labs to go run some things like what, what is test driven development for, for any of these things mean, whether it's, you know, testing, uh, chef recipes or it's, you know, testing, you know, like network rollouts, like, 
are these separate environments still that people are doing this on? Are they doing it? Are they small enough changes that they're doing it in production? What is it? What's the reality of that mean? So the reality of it means is that it's it's flowing the development lifecycle into operations more. So it's it's a theme that I like repeat over and over again. Um, it's taking the hundreds of not hundreds of years computing's not that old so the 50 years or uh, however many years of the software development life cycle and software engineering and beginning to apply it to how we interact with our infrastructure components right so that's the simplest way to think of it okay. and so what that means is i'm actually going and i'm um um having jenkins actually build my infrastructure code and then not only take my infrastructure code, but actually build systems from it, so dynamically. Um, and before I even get to Jenkins and making sure Jenkins is and all my tests run in Jenkins, on my actual development box myself, I can actually use something like Test Kitchen, where I can actually do a it'll do a vagrant up for me. It'll apply all my recipes or manifests, and then it'll also apply the test to make sure that I'm not breaking something upstream. Okay. And then I can actually do a push using my uh, source control system. Then Jenkins can actually pick that up and do the exact same thing and merge in any other changes that might exist as well. So that as a set, I know that that whole thing is actually going to go out correctly. And so development's been doing this for years. Uh, it's really interesting to start to see this applied to infrastructure code because I know um, now that I have I have this kind of chain of custody and control to make sure that I'm not going to break something in production when I push it upstream. I gotcha. So, so it's really kind of the idea that, um, you know, instead of saying, well, I wrote this code, I tested it and then, you know, QA might've tested it or dev might've tested it, but it's, you know, sort of like, well, it's, it's its own controlled environment. It's, it's not exactly, I mean, you can basically simulate exactly what it's going to look like and you can test how the deployments work. And, and find yes. where those things break. And, and okay, so you're, it, it is, it's really about really bridging those gaps between the kind of the siloed environments uh, almost for everything now. It's not only uh, the infrastructure and, and the applications, but it's, it's getting into the network and other aspects of that as well. Yeah, exactly. So what cloud has really enabled us to do is build that infrastructure that looks just like production. And, you know, ideally you're production environment is running in a cloud environment so therefore you can spin up an exact replica uh in a lower environment and test it to make sure that it's going to behave exactly as you expect it to right and that's you know i think of cloud as the plumbing that enables us to move that much faster by layering on things like test-driven development and continuous integration and things like that gotcha gotcha so um you know i i know in a couple of the jobs I've had before, we've uh, we've contracted out, had folks that kind of came in and were going to help us with some of the automation stuff. What, what's your experience in that? So whether it was you were working for Chef or you were you were doing other work, where where people would bring you in and go, help me, you know, it could be as, as broad and nebulous as like help me get to DevOps, help me figure out how to automate. So like, what's what's a typical process if you walk into a shop that's even if they're decent. Uh, from a sysadmin perspective, like what are the, the key things you tend to go after and help them work on? So let's talk about the old way of doing things okay. before we talk about how we do things now, or at least Chef's philosophy behind it. Yeah. So um, 
I used to work for a big mega vendor whose name will will not be mentioned. Um, you know, it's easy enough to find out who it was. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the philosophy there a lot of times was that they would hire services. The customer would hire services, and services would come in and they would essentially implement everything in a vacuum, and then day ninety eight of the services engagement, um, they would hand everything off to the customer with a document describing what they did. And then day 90, they would run, right? And, you know, <laughs> right, right, and right, just right. drop this bag of goods off on the customer. So the way that we're kind of changing our consulting engagements, it's actually truly a consulting engagement. And um, Jeff Einhorn from Target actually talked about this at ChefConf and the videos online. But what he talked about is that what Chef did at Target was actually go in and um, provide guidance and best practices and kind of just set their and help them build this framework that they could use to be successful. And thus, then Target actually had to go and write a lot of the infrastructure code themselves, right? So we did we did a little bit of work for them just to get them started, but once we got them started, we let them run with it. And that's kind of the philosophy that we're taking. And uh, one of the announcements we made at ChefConf was what's called the Chef Development Kit. And what this allows anyone who wants to get started with Chef, it's basically all of the tools that you need to basically start to enforce best practices in your infrastructure code and help you get started as, as quickly as possible. And it's really kind of that, and it also enforces things like test-driven development in your infrastructure code as well. So it's really of us trying to really change the mindset of how we do this infrastructure automation or infrastructure code as it is. Um, Versus the old way of doing things and like, let's, let's try and bolt this on to this old environment that may not actually be suitable for automation. Um, and kind of the, the drop and run type method that a lot of vendors try to do. So what we're about is empowering. I feel like I'm rambling, but <laughs> what we're about is empowering the user as much as possible to be successful. Okay. So if I, if I sort of, if I sort of parrot that back, I mean, there's a, there's a piece of this that says like, you know, if your if your strategy is, I hope everybody will change and kind of get to this, you know, perfect mode. You're you're gonna have a hard time because people have a hard time changing unless you kind of live it with them. You kind of start them in the right track, right? And that's in essence what you're what you guys kind of tried to do, which was take this uh, Chef Developer Kit, which in essence is like you're saying, sort of best practices built in. You guys spend some time, sort of hands on with them. And you've you've pushed them down the path without having to, you know, retrofit a whole bunch of other stuff. Is that yeah? Okay, exactly. Yep. And so, but you mentioned you know the whole idea of change, right? You know, change isn't uh, like change is optional, right? And I think Deming said it best, right? Is that there's no requirement that you have to change. And so I was watching a presentation today by uh, Bridget Com. Cromholt, I'll butcher her name. Sorry, Bridget. Um, but she was talking about how she learned to stop worrying and love DevOps was the title of her talk. And in it, she showed a picture of a snowman that's just hanging out on the street, and it's a nice spring day, and he's beginning to melt, right? And, like, for him, you know, he doesn't, like, change is, not changing is an option, right? And if he doesn't change, then he's just going to sit there and he's going to melt into the sewer and the sewer will easily consume him. So, I mean, the world is changing. Whether if you want to get on board or not, it's totally optional, right? Because eventually you'll be there and you'll be the, the guy who's a COBOL programmer. No offense to COBOL programmers, but, you know, they still have a job 
out there for them in case some cases, but a lot of them didn't decide to change. A lot of them didn't learn to learn C, learn Java, and be able to move on in the world. And I think I think we're learning more and more that you have to evolve or die. Right, right. And and I mean you you know you like you talked about you travel quite a bit. You're involved with a lot of the meetups and the different events. I mean, how much do you see people that are very good at this stuff? Um, you know, whether it's Etsy or whether it's whoever uh, that, that speak pretty frequently. I mean, do you see people? learning from a lot of those or is it is in the is the devops community a little bit like you know where you had uh adrian from netflix speaking at every single conference and everybody went yeah you're you're kind of a unique snowflake you're not like me or are, do people learn quite a bit from their peers in around devops stuff are they is it a lot of sharing is it pretty open oh it's extremely open i mean that's one of the tenets of devops right is is collaboration and sharing um, what I find really interesting, and so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not on the East Coast. I'm not on the West Coast. So I'm in the Midwest, and um, the Midwest is several years behind. At least, at least the large enterprises in the Midwest are several, several years behind Silicon Valley. Sure. Well, they're probably five years behind Silicon Valley, and they're probably two or three years behind the East Coast. And what I find really interesting is that they're really starting to get it right. So um, Target is a great example of an organization that's really beginning to understand that they have to change or they're not going to be around. Um, and, and Best Buy is another example of like being threatened with their business and they actually having to change. But that flows into some of the other bigger organizations, um, like a big healthcare company that I, here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, where they're really, they've, they've broken off a team and this team is now completely isolated in a new building. Um, developer and operations working together and they basically have have built this incubator to where they can actually build innovation and they realized that all of they had to get all of those people away from that old environment that wasn't a, a productive environment for them so that they can begin to change and evolve their business and that's what i really like to see when i go up and uh, participate in these meetups and conferences and things like that of like these old stodgy companies that you would think are old and stodgy that are really beginning to get it and really beginning to change the way they think. Yeah. And they're, a lot of them are getting it because their business goes through some sort of, maybe not turmoil, but they enough of a, of a threat or a challenge or something where they feel like I just, I just can't get there from where I was before. And, uh, it, it sort of, I don't want to say it's forced on them, but, but change sometimes happens faster than you expect it to. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, and it seems like most of the customers who get it the fastest are, are retailers, right? So yeah, competing uh, against Amazon. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. So we were talking a little bit offline before you jumped on. Um, you know, one of the things you do in, in your new role at chef is, is working with partners. I know we have a lot of folks that listen to the show that work for what, what might fall into what considered sort of traditional VARs. So value added resellers, people that do, uh, work with a lot of customers, maybe their, their forte isn't systems integration so much it's more infrastructure stuff do you see those kind of companies somewhat coming to you guys and saying hey we're, we're seeing this trend a little bit we want to branch that out in our business or is that something that you know you you you're seeking people for because i i think i hear that a lot from them going where do we go next with our business what's the next practice we should try and drive um is that something you're seeing more and more is that 
you know, new groups are coming to you going, how do we get engaged with chef? How do we create a business out of this? How do we go engage with customers? What's the best practices we should try and take to the market? Yeah, definitely. So, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of those traditional, I guess, MSPs or SIs, Mm -hmm. uh, really start to take a hard look at automation. And I think in some of those cases, what they're realizing is that they have to start to move faster to deliver services to their customer. So what's interesting is like, if you look at it from a financial perspective, um, the faster that you can begin to get a payoff from the investment that you're making in technology, um, the more likely that this project is going to actually be what's called uh, NPV positive, so net present value positive. So basically what that means in non-finance people terms is that it's going to be a profitable project for the company. Right. And if and if you have a IT project, whether if it's an SI doing it or an MSP or an internal project, um, and if it drags on for several months, and they talk about this in the Phoenix project, that if it talks, drags on for several months or years, it's never going to be a profitable project. Um, you'll, there's no way that you'll ever be able to have um, a positive return on that investment that you're making. And so you have to just – what they're realizing is that to be profitable, they have to move faster and faster. And if they don't do it, their competition will do it and begin to steal business from them. Okay. So there, there's becoming a very, very short uh, space between the guys who understand the business and the folks who are – tasked with the technology of it. Whereas maybe before there was, there was a, a long way between what it did and, and what the business guys were trying to do. You're seeing that get very, very compressed, I would guess. Oh yeah. Very compressed. So, you know, obviously you, you talk to a lot of different companies, a lot of different customers in terms of sort of where the deploy stuff or who's, who's driving this stuff. Are you seeing it you know, mostly out in the public clouds? Are you seeing people still building their own internal environments, but building them differently? What's, you know, who's, who's driving a lot of the change and where are they, where are they deploying it? So the, I'll take the second question first. Um, so where are they deploying it? It's a mix. Um, we have a lot of customers that are in, in public clouds, but, um, I wouldn't say that they trump kind of the traditional data centers or even private cloud environments. And a lot of times it's not even just uh, a cloud environment, but it could just be traditional, you know, virtualization type environments. Um, What's kind of interesting is you don't, like the idea that cloud is catching on like gangbusters. I mean, Amazon announced today 60% revenue increases, um, in their other category, which we all know is AWS. Right. But, uh, or it could be their drone, right? Maybe that <laughs> actually got off the ground. Right. Um, but we see it, but I don't think we see it proportionally higher than, than traditional data center type models. Cause there's still a whole lot of traditional data center stuff out there that isn't going away anytime soon. Right. 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 Um, as far as who's doing it, um, we're starting to see more and more kind of what you would call traditional ops teams kind of really waking up and realizing that they have to bring in uh, some level of new automation. They might have older style automation from kind of the, the four big uh, uh, enterprise software vendors, and they're trying to look to displace, displace that in some cases. Um, where we get a lot of the traction is in development teams and also um, kind of the newfangled 
DevOps teams where they're actually trying to do something disruptive with a new product or something like that. Okay. And so typically it's it's the small project that we begin to work on and we become successful with that small project and then we just kind of become viral in the organization because this project was successful and and um, they were able to show value out of it and then it kind of just spreads throughout the entire org. Okay. And, and when you talk about sort of in the cases where it's kind of the traditional ops teams, is it is it mostly like the sysadmin kind of teams, or do you see the network guys get pulled into that, or is it is it still all over the board in terms of who kind of can adapt to it? So it's more the traditional sysadmin teams, and so me and John Willis um, have kind of had this this conversation. The networking team is a long way off from from yeah. joining the party, um, and you know, no offense to any of the network people listening, but. Um, they have a much harder mindset, I think, to change to automation and adopting automation and having this machine go and configure your machines, right? Um, and it's a hard concept even for sysadmins to get under uh, their their head sometimes. Um, but the networking people, I think, aren't the ones kind of driving this conversation. It's more either on their traditional sysadmin side or even the developer side of the house. Right. Right. Okay. And that makes sense. It's, it's the teams that the, the, the jump to getting there isn't nearly as big as like you said, the, uh, the storage teams or the network teams who, uh, changes potentially blow everything up and everybody hears about it when that blows up versus one server or one virtual machine or something. Yeah. It's the teams that are feeling the pain. Although I will say, um, the networking side of things are getting really interesting because, um, at least from the large data center providers, they're actually beginning to realize that they need some level of automation. Yep. And they're starting to pressure some of the large vendors to start to support more automation platforms. And so I was at Interop actually a few weeks ago, and uh, a lot of traditional infrastructure companies there at Interop, and uh, there were several of the large networking vendors that actually had an automation company in their booth highlighting how that automation company could actually interact with uh, their switches and routers and other devices. Yep. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, we're seeing it. Cisco's doing it in a whole bunch of ways, although it's not necessarily totally clear what they're doing. But yeah, when you see Arista, you see Cumulus, you see a lot of these guys who that's becoming the center of, of what they're talking about from a networking perspective. So um yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how fast that spreads because if you've done networking for a long time, the concept of like sort of continuous change scares the crap out of you because you think about spanning tree and broadcast storms and all sorts of stuff that takes a long time to clear and fix. And um, Yeah. What, what What's interesting is there's a ton of value that actually you can actually get from just like being able to just enable a port, right? Yeah. Just to enable a service, right? Or say you you need to scale your private cloud, and as part of that, you have to bring up more OpenStack nodes uh, or CloudStack hosts. And um, as part of that, you have to turn on a port so that he's on the right VLAN and everybody's a happy puppy. Um, and those are very little small things where you don't have to automate the entire network stack. You can just automate that one little piece of it. Yeah. And it's provided tremendous value. Hmm. Makes sense. You mentioned OpenStack and CloudStack and, and obviously, you know, you sort of talked about public cloud. So that's sort of the AWS piece. Are you seeing any of them trending, uh, ways that are different than we sort of hear out in the media quite a bit? I mean, Amazon's Amazon's Amazon. Are you seeing... <laughs> OpenStack more, less, CloudStack? What, what are you kind of seeing in that, that part of the, the segment? Well, 
so I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer that question. So we have a guy, Matt Ray, and he's he's focused on the OpenStack side of things. And somehow I've become the de facto CloudStack guy at Chef, um, mainly because I know a lot of the people in the CloudStack community. And so I see a lot of CloudStack. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if I could actually answer that question okay. accurately. Yeah, CloudStack's always been weird. It, it's, I mean, we, you know, Aaron obviously was there and Hinkle. And CloudStack always feels like it, it has a lot of deployments that we never really hear about because there's isn't there isn't a marketing arm for it like there is for OpenStack. Um, so, yeah, and from from the vendors that actually implement it perspective, you know, they don't need to make noise about it, right? What they want to make a noise about is the service that they're providing, right? And it's the plumbing, right? Um, yeah. Chip Childers from former VP of Apache CloudStack basically makes the analogy of Android versus iPhone, right? And um, you know iPhone is out there and nobody's making noise about it and everybody, it just works, right? right. And kind of where you hear all the noise and the marketing and the hype is around Android and Android kind of works sometimes and it kind of works other times and there's all these forks and different versions of it and it's hard to deploy software to and um, so he kind of makes the analogy that uh, Android is OpenStack and CloudStack is, is iOS or iPhone. Right, yeah. and it just works, and that's how your plumbing should be, because that's all infrastructure as service is—is is your plumbing. <laughs> right, right. No, it makes it makes total sense. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up a little bit because I know you have another whole bunch of hours tonight to go work because you're doing some <laughs> stuff on the other side of the world. Um, uh, for folks that are listening, what's what's your upcoming tour of conferences and speaking sessions, and where where can people bump into you out and about? Uh, so I'll actually be at IBM Impact uh, next week. And that's in Las Vegas, beautiful, sunny Las Vegas. Nice. Hopefully it's not too hot yet. And then uh, in May, I'm actually not 100% sure what I'll be doing. It uh, looks like I'll be heading to Tokyo, and I might be at Cloud Open Japan. And then after that, over in India. So if any listeners from India want to bump into me, uh, send me a tweet, and I'll be happy to uh, respond to you and see if we can hook up. And as part of that, we'll probably be doing like some chef workshops and, you know, shameless plug here. Sorry. No, it's uh, fine. Chef workshops and other things like that. So Very cool. And what's the, what's the deal with, with you going from being a vegan to eating meat again? What, uh, what was the religious uh, conversion back? <laughs> um, so I guess this might be a little bit too much detail for a podcast, but you asked. So I have a long line of, um, of uh, cancer in my family, ah. and that was kind of the original reason for going vegan. And uh, I, as as having this long line of cancer, I got to get an early colonoscopy. So 36, I was actually told to get a colonoscopy at 35. I got it at 36. And unfortunately, they found some polyps that were uh, not precancerous, but they were the type that were about a 90% chance that they would turn into cancer. So now I get to experience the colonoscopy every three years. And just kind of given how quickly polyps grow and things like that, um, you know, I might as well eat meat because if I'm going to go back every three years and they'll clean out any bad stuff in me. Uh, from a, a risk management perspective, it just kind of didn't seem to make sense anymore. Yeah, gotcha. Well, no, well, that's, I mean, you know, early detection is good. I think, unfortunately, we've all been, uh, we've all been touched by somebody uh, nearby who's, who's dealt with cancer. So good to know that you're, you're taking care of yourself, that, that the doctors are taking good care of you and also, and, uh, and you, you can confirm that you're not cloud Borat that I always kind of poke at you every once in a while. 
No, I actually met Cloud Borat uh, a few weeks ago in Denver, and actually some other people did as well. So Robin Bergeron from uh, Red Hat and also Chip Shoulders, who I mentioned earlier, and David Nolly from CloudStack was there as well. So they can confirm that it's not me. <laughs> All right. Well, that, and that actually checked a few names off the list that we, we kind of thought it might be as well. So, Yeah, but it could have been one of them. That's, well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All I said is they could confirm it's not me. There you go. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you coming on tonight. I'm glad we finally got you on, um, folks. If, if you've if you've never sort of read some of Michael's uh, some of his stuff, and we, we've got a bunch in the show notes as far as uh, some of the blogs you've written and the places you've been mentioned, go read it. It's it's very good about kind of the culture around continuous automation, uh, continuous deployments, DevOps. Um, you know, definitely somebody if you're into the space to go go follow, and uh, we'll have all your uh, your Twitter stuff in the in the show notes. But thank you very much for being on tonight, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, as always, folks, if you like the show, tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcast.net or on the web at thecloudcast.net. You can find all things uh, Cloudcast. Thanks for listening, and we will be back. Uh, It's going to be a little busy for a couple of weeks, and then we will be back doing a whole bunch of shows at the OpenStack conference. So if you want to be on the show, if you want to recommend somebody, just uh, shoot us a DM or shoot us an email. So uh, for Aaron and for me and for Michael, thanks for coming on tonight, and thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. The show is over. Go back to your regular life. It's much more interesting than the podcast. I promise it is.